Welcome to Sound London Hardcore. I'm Jack McInroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. This week's show is another book club episode. We've read The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter and Shopaholic and Sister by Sophie Kinsella. Two female authors from South West London. Before we get going, let me tell you about Holdfest, the UK's first podcast festival. South London Hardcore will be there. It'll be our 150th episode. And you can buy tickets now from holdfastnetwork.com slash holdfest. There'll also be an edition of Process where I'll be talking to Babak Ganjo about his work. And Daniel Ruiz Tyson will be there. Get your tickets now, holdfastnetwork.com slash holdfest. Let me tell you some things that South London Hardcore doesn't have. Right, we don't have a donate button. We don't have a Kickstarter campaign or Indiegogo telling you we need this many pledges for, you, for us to keep doing the podcast. We don't have a sponsor. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you about stamps.com or MailKimp. It's quite simple. We've got an Amazon banner on the website. So it costs you nothing. You're never going to pay us for us to do the podcast. Use the Amazon link when you go shop on Amazon. Ask your friends to as well and we'll get a small kickback from Amazon that helps us fund the show. Or buy a t-shirt from southlandhardcore.spreadshirt.co.uk. Again, don't give us any money. Just get yourself a great t-shirt. So the first book in today's book club is The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. It's feminist retellings of traditional folk tales and fairy tales. A selection of short stories based around, at first, familiar settings and characters, but with these twists placed upon them. Published in 1979, she already had a few novels under her belt and many other. She wrote, you know, in fiction and non-fiction, various forms, radio plays, all kinds of things. Uh, we'll come on to that some of that a bit later. But this is sort of in the middle of her career, isn't it? So Angela Carter was born in 1940 in Eastbourne, but moved to Ballam, uh, went to Streatham and Clapham High School. That's one school, by the way. It's not two different <laughs> schools. She wasn't expelled or anything. So firmly a South Londoner. Went to work at the Croydon Advertiser. you got more on that. Yeah, Dad worked at the Croydon Advertiser as well, I think. Mm. And it's a, um, a local paper that's still going. Not the sort of paper that you'd imagine Angela Carter uh, writing for. We've, you know, on many of our local news episodes, we've called out local journalism for some of their idiosyncrasies. If she was still with us, Steve, where do you think she would be at the uh, Bromley News Shopper? <laughs> just out there, just tracking down animals in slightly odd places. <laughs> but yeah, she died in 1992 of uh, lung cancer. Uh, she was living in Clapham at that point. But she she came and went from South London. She definitely identified as a South Londoner. In her 1991 review for Ian Sinclair's Down River, she wrote, she was talking about coming over the other side of the river, essentially. And she says, I felt quite the country bumpkin, slow-moving, slow-witted, coming from the pastoral world of Clapham Common, Brockwell Park, Tooting Beck. People spoke differently, an accent with clatter and spikes to it. They focused their sharp, bright eyes directly on you. None of that colonialised, transpontine, slivering regard. And maybe if we'd have realised this, Steve, we might have read a different book, I don't know, but her 1967 book, The Magic Toy Shop, was set in Crystal Palace. And in 1991, she wrote Wise Children, which is set in Bard's Road in Brixton. Oh, right. Mm. The only novel of hers I've read is uh, Knights of the Opera, which is set like across continental Europe. Right, right. But no, Bloody Chamber is the... What she's most famous for, for sure. I always think of Knights of the Circus as being more famous, but I think 
Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, she wrote these uh, great novels, but this, as a project, seems to have had an impact upon the literary scene. Not only as a work, but in terms of what the ambition of what she was trying to do as well. Had you read any Angela Carter before? I hadn't, no. It's one of those ones that I knew from working at Wartstones. Bloody Chamber would be face out. Do people know what a face out is? Of course they do. <laughs> the thing is, if they don't, <laughs> lateral thought gets <laughs> you over there. Let me just drop in this Angela Carter quote, because maybe it is important. My intention was not to do versions, or as the American edition of the book said, horribly adult fairy tales, but to extract the latent content from the traditional stories and use it as the beginnings of new stories. So the, fir- the title story is The Bloody Chamber, which is a retelling of Bluebeard, which I'd never even heard of. So, oh, right. Yeah, so it's not... What, like, as a... I've heard the word Bluebeard, but I thought it was the name of a pirate... I didn't realise it was... There's like a, Blackbeard the pirate. Yeah. Uh, I think Bluebeard in some versions, they might have conflated and he becomes a pirate. But there's also, there's a Kurt Vonnegut novel called Bluebeard. Of course there is, yeah. yeah. Which I've not read, though. Oh, okay. I've not read. Is it based on... It, 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 in the same way as this is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it okay. takes the source material, but moves away from it. It's Vonnegut, so he's not going to just do... But yeah, they, thematically, there's a lot of elements to it. So The Bloody Chamber, the story, takes up probably, say, a fifth of the book, is it? Yeah, yeah, no, it's... Uh, Huge chunk of it. So I wasn't, I kind of didn't have the frame of reference for that, if you know what I mean. Like later on, say, Puss in Boots or Red Riding Hood, you kind of, it's fascinating to see what's going to happen, yeah, how yeah. she's going to use the. But it was interesting to read uh, The Bloody Chamber without knowing the Bluebeard story. It was. Just as a piece, just yeah, as a Yeah, I was kind of, I was sort of hooked. Right. As, as, um, in a different way, if you like. Well, that's the power of her writing, isn't it? That's the thing. Reading this, the thing that, that struck me most of all was like, and I, I said I never read one book before, and I do remember really enjoying it, but never went back to revisit and look at anything else. But she is just a tremendous writer, isn't it? Wonderful uh, turn of phrase. Mm. And I thought the stories, structurally, she really used the form in terms of, she wanted to do something that was obviously based on these traditional tales and had a particular uh, flow to the language. And because there's, particularly with the very short pieces, it, it's it's sort of short paragraphs and short bursts and there's single lines. It's very sort of short bursts of language. So within that, it's very florid, isn't it? She sort of does allow herself to sort of um, really go to town in terms of the descriptions and the imagery and the uh, the, the, the actual words that she's using her vocabulary in the in the pages yeah the prose is uh it's quite stunning it's the sort of thing you know sometimes you think yeah i could write a novel and you know to a degree you could write you know as we get on to our second book (laughs) maybe think everyone's got a book in them just is that book worth taking out of you but when you read when you read it you're like oh i could never yeah i I will never get i'll never be able to write anything like this kind of stuff well, there's single lines that are just so sort of beautifully balanced and phrased. You just, and as I say, so rich. And it, it is a thing where... And I remember Knights of the Circus being well-written, but I don't remember it being as florid as this. And I think if she sort of took this style and did it over a novel, it would be too much. I think it would be overwhelming a bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I found it... Um... I mean, heavy going is... I, I, I refer to my own short attention span as much as anything. But... It, uh, yeah, I'm not. I won't be seeking out other stuff to read. Right, 
because as much as I was impressed by it, it's not uh, it's not something I'm after. No, it's not light reading, is it? That's the thing. In no. terms of the ambition and the say of the piece, and then the style of the piece, it is uh, you know tour de force. It is her almost sort of flexing her sort of literary muscles and sort of saying, "I can do this," and people are going to be a bit thrown by what I'm trying to do and how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to absolutely nail it. And it is just a, re- a remarkable piece of work, I think. The settings for the stories are a little ambiguous at times, aren't they? Like, in terms of the time frame. Like, somehow she manages to kind of keep... You know, you don't want to say she's... she's they're not modern updating to the stories. No, no. Certainly not. No. But... And they're not kind of, it's not like kind of taking the settings into the real world either. No. It kind of, for me, it kind of, it highlighted the kind of brutality of a lot of these kind of fairy tales, you know, with people dying and stuff or being sort of trapped or, you know, just the kind of, the plight of women. Um, so, did, but did, without taking that into the real world, it still kind of kept a kind of story, ta- uh, fairy tale aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about these stories, the the you know, particularly at that point, and even now, you know, if you buy a book of folk tales or, or fairy stories, the chances are it will be the polished Victorian versions, where you know there's beheadings and death, but all in a very clean way. You know, everything's cleaved straight off, and like you know, Hansel and Gretel and Red Riding Hood, and there's like. A bit of peril, but good eventually wins. Whereas, if you look at the original versions of a lot of these stories, uh, they are genuinely horrific. It is about mutilation and torture and murder and, um, you know, the bloody chamber. That's uh, a, a title that you wouldn't get for um, a, a uh, you know a, a, a fairy tale fact in, in the way that we think of it because we think of them as children's stories, and as you say. She, she does a great job, I think, in terms of keeping it within the frame that we know them in. They do have a sort of there's a, a sort of medieval feeling to the settings. There's sort of mentions of other worlds mm. and other places, but it's very much still gothic castles and dark forests and snowy paths. It is the the setting. She doesn't need to change that. What she changes is. Not even the content particularly, because as I say, the horror that she brings in is there in the books originally. But just refocusing things and just re-examining things. You know, the idea of the woman being imperiled in the stories, where she's like, well, is she imperiled or is this an opportunity for a woman with enough guile and enough nous to sort of create an opportunity for herself? We get a great example of... This refocusing is what I would call it from Carter um, in the stories. In, in the first story, in The Bloody Chamber, where in lieu of the traditional adventurer, male adventurer, saving the imperiled woman, um, it's the, you know, spoilers for uh, hmm. medieval folk tales and fairy tales retold in the 70s. But um, it's the, the main character's mother who saves her. And there's a wonderful piece very early in the story where it's established that it's not just this uh, sort of the mother as deus ex machina coming down and sort of out of nowhere saving her. It's established very early on that the mother 
is unlike the sort of woman you, you used to find in these fairy tales. She's described as um, eagle-featured, indomitable mother. What other student at the conservatoire could boast that her mother had outfaced a junk full of Chinese pirates, nursed a village through a visitation of the plague, shot a man-eating tiger with her own hand, and all before she was as old as I. And it is this thing where these aren't the characters that we're used to seeing. The, the men, uh, by and large, are. They're sort of... Uh, but even then, there's moments like the, 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 the traditional villains aren't necessarily villains. They're, they still have the same drives and motives. But then, the, the, as I say, by just recontextualising what's going on, it transforms the stories completely. But language as well, just in terms of uh, description. Uh, it's another bit. I forget which story it's from. It says, uh, his wedding gift clasped around my throat, a choker of rubies two inches wide, like an extraordinarily precious slit throat. Yeah, it's from the Bloody Chamber. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. All right. I've got one that's not from the Bloody Chamber. This is definitely from <laughs> later in the thing. Cause, uh, but, and, and again, this is just, as I say, you know, characters, language, but then uh, characters' descriptions, but just the, the language generally. This, this phrase just leapt out of me where um, it says, she goes out at night more often now. The landscape assembles itself around her. She informs it of her presence. She is its, its, it, she is its significance. It's a remarkable piece of writing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, just tremendous. And as I say, with that, no particular purpose in terms of carrying narrative or display. Well, character in a way, but just, just this remarkable and as I say, short, punchy bit of writing, but just so loaded with meaning. So undoubtedly, one of South London's greatest writers. I'm not sure where this comes from, but it's one of the great descriptions of South London's I've ever read. The side the tourist rarely sees, the bastard side of old Father Thames. <laughs> the second book we read is Shopaholic and Sister by Sophie Kinsella. It's the fourth book in the Shopaholic series following Secret Dream World of a Shopaholic, Shopaholic Abroad and Shopaholic Ties the Knot. Seven altogether, uh, plus six standalone novels, Sophie Kinsella. But her real name is Madeline Wickham. Born 1969, went to Putney High School, grew up in Putney and Dorset. She was a finance journalist and put out her first novel at the age of 24, The Tennis Party. Then wrote six more novels and then wrote these uh, shopaholic books and has never looked back. She's not written anything under her own name since then. That mess with success, isn't it? Well, she sold six million books as Sophie Kinsella and is one of the 100 richest women in the UK. Shopaholic and Sister, you can dive into the series, I think, anywhere. It's written in the first person, so the main character is often letting you know what she's done in the past just to catch you up, I think. The great thing about these books is you don't have to read them. (laughs) If you want uh, a potted history of the Shopaholic character, just look at the titles, isn't it? She goes abroad. (laughs) She is a Shopaholic. (laughs) She goes abroad. She gets married. Uh, she finds out she's got a sister. What's the next book in the series? Little little footsteps of a shop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She, she, she has a kid, and it? yeah. it's just sort of you know, it's pretty obvious uh, what what's going on. You, you, there's no need to worry about getting lost in this. In I'll give people world. a very short uh, introduction, though, Steve. I Is think it... I did when I said she finds out she's got a sister. <laughs> yeah, Becky Blomwood. Is the titular well, sorry, character? Sorry, uh, Becky Brandon. You're acting like uh, shop <laughs> like ties don't never exist. Never <laughs> happened. Sorry, knee knee Blomwood. 
Um, they're very insistent on that, aren't they? It's almost like she's worried that her uh, readers are morons that are going to forget who this character is because it's got <laughs> ah, different names ah. from other books. Which uh, seems odd to me because I think, you know, this is, these are novels. Surely people are keeping up on who the main characters. catch people up, Steve. Sorry, sorry. Um, so the, the novel starts, she's been on, on honeymoon for ten months. Just the ten months. They, they were going to go for the year, weren't they? They but... decided to go home early because of a christening, mostly. Um, the husband, Luke... Is busy with his business, exciting developments, but she wants to get home and get a. When you say exciting developments, he's um, a PR man that's got a contract for a, a new multinational company. Exactly. So it's all relative exciting, <laughs> I mean, because that to me sounds like a fate worse than death, but you know. She soon finds out she's got a long lost sister, and uh, the adventure begins there in a way. It's a half sister. Yeah. Which yeah. is important because. The only time I felt the novel hit anything like fresh ground or something that could potentially be interesting in the right hands was the dynamic between her parents where they find out that the dad's had an affair years ago and produced or, you know, had a No, it was pre, isn't it? Well, yeah. yeah well, they, they, it's so sanitised. Yeah, so Which we'll come on to. But, yeah, like, they, but... They, the parents are going through marriage counselling. So you get what could be the, the sort of the nugget of a decent comedic subplot with the parents, you know, these very staid, middle-class uh, parents going through marriage therapy and suddenly talking psychobabble and wearing, like, positive affirmation T-shirts and whatnot. It's, it's not good. You know, it is rubbish. Uh, but that was the only thing where I was like, that could have been interesting. Oh, the rest of it, there's nothing going on. Yeah, no, there? I must admit, Steve, I did not at any point feel that could have been interesting. No, no. no. It was the best chance. Best chance the book had, I think. The whole thrust of the novel, or the series, is, oh, what am I like? Isn't yeah. it? You know, this Becky character, it's just she's constantly, like, taking her bra off in front of a child's party and like, oh, oh, like that time when I, you know, did this wacky thing. But, like, without any kind of irony or anything. There's no charm. She's an entirely charming character. It's very odd because, like, I, in my notes, I've got to me reading this book felt exploitative. I've, I felt like I was reading about someone that is unwell, that has you know problems and issues that really shouldn't be the stuff of comedy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do, I do. But I think that could there's potentially you could make something interesting along those lines, but because it's so. Is someone sat down and just written and with with these books? She's just written and written stuff to make some money. Like she's just churned it out absolute junk, and it, with a very specific purpose, which I think we'll probably come on to later. That it there is none of that. Like there's nothing below the surface. It's just so surface, and it, she doesn't go anywhere below it to go. This problem. This person's got serious problems. That. To, the, the, to look beyond that, I think, is giving it too much credit. But that's the thing. I don't think she thinks the character has got serious problems. She seems to think that this is... Uh, she's, like, charming and, and fun. Whereas in reality, as I say, I just sort of read it and was like, she's just intolerable to everyone around her. She's like an adult child. She has these uh, outbursts of anger and just... Uh, I think, no, you hit the nail on the head there, Stephen. This is what I was thinking throughout. It is, it is, the character is like a child. And 
similarly, it's it's like a, it reads like a children's book to me. Yeah, it reads yeah. like it's aimed at twelve year olds, and I don't really necessarily want to belittle the things people are interested in. You know, there's a slim chance someone who's listening who who likes this or things like it, but it, it's it's awful. And it, it's aimed, it just re- it read to me like it could be from the nine, genuinely from the 9 to 12 section. Apart from a handful of swear words that are thrown in that feel incongruous for that reason. It's like, the style of it is just, it's like a, the stream of, a stream of consciousness of an idiot. Yeah, it? yeah. But that's the thing. For me, the fact that no one in the book questions what she's doing, or everyone facilitates it and seems charmed by it. So you just think that everyone in the book also has... Just psychological problems that are, <laughs> like the uh, husband is apparently an intelligent, successful man, and yet he doesn't seem bothered at all no. by the fact that his wife is entirely dysfunctional. I mean, she's presented as a, a, a journalist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's every, but the, the thing is, the, the trouble is why you kind of have to stop yourself from uh, digging deeper on it or saying why are these characters. It's because it's. Because everything is written like it's for children, it's so uh, the the reactions to every situation are so infantile. Like she sees someone coming, and she has the reaction of an eleven-year-old. Yeah, you know, it's a bit late in the book. There's a whole there's a subplot about the best. She's been on honeymoon for ten months. She ain't seen the best friend, and the best friend has got a new best friend, and it doesn't really go anywhere. That's the plot. It's there. so odd, isn't it? It is very strange because they it, keep sort of mentioning it. Yeah, and you know, oh, there'll be a confrontation, and there isn't. There's just like a, a chat. There was one bit where I, I thought, oh, we've not seen that for 200 pages. Because yeah. the book is very, very long as well. Well, <laughs> no, I suppose the type is probably big. But it's 378 pages. That's another issue. But there's a, <laughs> there's a bit where, they, where Becky's best friend says, I don't hate Lulu, but I prefer you. Like, as if anyone would ever say that. Like, it's, some, it's the sort of thing a child would write or, and that a child would read. Yeah, it's the, the characters and their behaviours fit best on the playground. As I say, it's just tantrums a lot of the time, isn't yeah. it? Just people just yelling at each other for very tiny things and then almost immediately sort of forgiving and forgetting and you're just sort of like, this isn't this can't be how the world works in your mind. No, like the whole the whole kind of shopaholic element of it, like you're saying that she's got problems. Even if you kinda of go, right, it's very it's a light hearted thing, but for her to just be walking around and she spends like literally thousands of pounds on everything. Yeah. And like she's like, oh, I can't remember what I've bought. Like it's, it, it doesn't belong in an, a book for adults. And and later on, when she's confronted with credit card bills, and then the husband just kind of like because we're talking like tens of thousands of pounds here, you don't get the impression they're actually millionaires. No. I mean they're meant to be rich, but like tens of thousands of pounds, and he's like, okay, we'll just. Uh, you know, or, and you know, she comes across eBay and she's just like, oh, I've never heard of this eBay. The book was written in 2003, but people had heard of eBay then, you know, younger listeners. Particularly financial journalists, you'd imagine. <laughs> I'm a financial journalist, I have not eBay. I didn't think you were a moron. It's just like, brilliant, I'm on a budget, so I can spend this much on this. Oh, but I'll spend, you know, it, it's like that whole kind of thing. But of- this is the thing, this then ties into... Uh, as a discrediting the husband as, as being any sort of intelligent character. It's like, she ends up with the house full of stuff where she's bought too much stuff. Yes. She sells off the stuff and he puts on like a £20 a day budget and she's coming back from Fortnum's with the shopping. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, you do well with 20 a day? She's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm being very careful. But she's not, she said, and he's like, oh, the stuff seems to be going from like, I'll put it in storage. No, she hasn't, she's sold it. But why wouldn't she just tell him that and go, I've transformed those six tables we didn't need mm. into loads of nice food. I mean, 
that one of the issues I had was like, you know, in terms of the plotting, it's so clumsy. Like you're presented with these moments of apparent drama where it's like, oh my god, my spending, my out of control spending has now led to this point where <laughs> I have to face the consequences, yeah. and that is there is all this stuff in these bills, and then the next page is like the husband going, well, I've paid off all the bills, yeah. So all you got to do is deal with the stuff, and she's like, okay, well, I better deal with the stuff. And then the thing is, I oh, just go on eBay. Like, here's the thing: we've both used eBay. A lot of our listeners would have used eBay. Yeah. If you've got six dining tables to get rid of on eBay, well, she's dragging that down the post office. She, yeah, there's this, no, it's not this, addressed at all, is it? This moron like, that yeah. cannot use or understand very basic things is arranging for dispatch with a courier service. Come on. Yeah, yeah, it's just the whole thing falls apart, Steve, doesn't it? It's almost like it's not designed to be looked at too closely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we're not looking too closely. We're sort of going, no. these characters don't work. No, they don't. And it's just the thing where, by doing that with the plot, by having these problems come up just to be solved immediately, magically, mm. and these characters that just do what they need to do from scene to scene. Like, as I say, when he needs to be, the husband is uh, very for- you know, £20 a budget and I've paid everything off. But the rest of the time, he's just grinning inanely while she's doing ridiculous things. What, what, what's he getting out of this as well? This is the other thing where you're going, like, what, what is any of them getting out of this? Like, no, there's no one in this book that's pleasant to be around. Do you know what I mean? Like, when, what's, what attracts him to her or her to him? I don't understand. Well, maybe they're both really hot. They must be that. I mean, they're not. I think just everybody in this book is just smoking hot. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of subject. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think of that. I was thinking that they're so dreadful to be around. No, I but think obviously, really sexy, right? <laughs> Just going back to the style briefly, Steve. It's peppered with these fake letters. I say fake. I mean, obviously, it's a work of fiction. But f- between <laughs> chapters, I mean, fake like hashtag F triple A. Yeah, yeah. With these letters from like banks and stuff, going, "I'm sorry, Miss Blondwood, we can't." Um, and this is not a real example, but you know, we, or whatever. We, you, you know. The Mrs. Is Brandon, ridiculous. why do you accept she got married? <laughs> Did you have your eye on her? You read the earlier books and you were gutted when. Uh... But they're just they're, they're really really appalling, and they they read like those tw- Twitter tryhards that it seems to be all the rage <laughs> at the moment. People just going, "Oh, I've got this letter back from Amazon," going, "Oh no, we won't be able to list your toenails." Like, yeah, yeah, just people that have got no kind of talent for comedy, just trying to do the, get these easy wins and failing miserably. This should be on the blur- back of the book as blurb, I think, shouldn't it? <laughs> well, on the back of the book. It's got an extraordinary. Um, I can't. I couldn't get over it's this. It's got an extraordinary quote. It says adequate. Um, the funniest so far. I tell you what. There was one bit where I kind of raised a smile, where um, the, the sister uh, in it is like a kind of square. You know, she won't spend it. Skinflint. Because it's her. a comedy, she's the direct opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's one bit where. Um, and just very quickly going back to how she reacts to everything like someone in a children's book yeah. would. Oh, you've got a long lost sister. She goes, wow, I always wanted a sister. Like, there's no there's yeah. no other level to it. It's always just like, oh, she's... will she like shopping like me? This is the thing. She's like, oh, I've always wanted a sister. She's going to be exactly the same yeah. as me, this other human being. And you're like, no one would ever respond like that. No one would think like that unless they had psychological issues that need to be dealt with. Yeah, and the bit that made me laugh was uh, she goes... Um, she goes to her sister, the first time she meets her, she goes, you always knew, didn't you, that you sister? And her, her sister goes, no. <laughs> and like, I thought that was quite amusing, but there's no more to it. 
Yeah, there also seems to be, it seems to me like Sophie Kinsella doesn't understand what a sister is at points. She gets towards the end of the book, the whole thing is like, is she my sister or not? And there is briefly a kind of suggestion that she might biologically not be her sister. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's almost as if, like, they don't, there's a, they seem to think you have to have something in common to be biologically yeah, sisters. Yeah, yeah, And I don't, that, that, if you If you're not, in terms of personality, identical to someone who's your sibling, then the chances are they're probably not your brother and or sister. Like, you've got uh, brothers and sisters, I've got a sister. I'm not like my sister. No, no, I'm not We're different like people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's how the world works. But, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't know how widely Sophie Kinsella has travelled or what sort of social circle she's mixed in. Well, she went back and forth from Dorset and Putney, I believe. Right, so <laughs> this book reads like someone who's gone between Dorset and Putney. Last thing on the style, Steve. Exclamation marks, right? Elmore Leonard is one of my very favourite authors. I've read more of his books than I've read of anyone else's. And he's his famous for his lean prose. And I, I think it's probably in his ten rules of writing. But certainly he says you should only have... Well, he, he's not telling everyone to do it. But he's, As a guide. Yeah, his guide is an exclamation mark every 10,000 words. Personally, if I'm writing anything, I try not to, uh, try not to use them very much. 10,000 words, I think, is kind of a good rule of thumb, maybe. I'll drop them in, but yeah. this is next level stuff, isn't it? I did a, I did a count, Steve, I did a count. There's 99,000 words in here, approximately, and there's 1,800 exclamation marks right here. <laughs> there's an exclamation mark every 54 words. <laughs> but it reads like that. Every paragraph, regardless of whether it's funny or supposed to be sad or supposed to be poignant or supposed to be carrying the story, it's just sort of like... And now this just happens, it's just... It takes you out of it as well. well it it just does fr- take it, any attempt at tone is mm. lost. It's just completely tone deaf as a book because it is just peppered with these exclamation marks. So, if we maybe talk about the uh, denouement for a moment, Steve. Um, Can we not talk about the end? <laughs> <laughs> no, and Jakar over it, <laughs> denouement, just because it's a book club episode. Come on. Uh... So it's just going along and nothing really happens in the book. Very little. So much of it is taken up with her thoughts. You know, between between dialogue, someone will say something and there'll be like two or three paragraphs of her thinking. Yeah, yeah. Before she replies, like it's the end. The end was my favourite bit. I I think we're going to talk about the same moment where uh, she chases her sister across a fell walk. Yeah. Wearing high heeled shoes. Uh a blouse and some trousers and carrying a designer handbag. And there was a moment where I thought, she's going to die. This well, is, she this falls is down a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. And it is, but it's just like, it's just like, it is the, 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 the book, every issue you have with a book in microcosm. Whereas like, people who live in this wild part of Yorkshire, just watch her walk up a mountain dress like <laughs> yeah. that. And no, they're obviously sick of her. They're maybe like, they, no, one, the first no one says anything. Um, and then she falls down the mountain, and yeah, it's just bad, isn't it? Just yeah. so, well, the, so bad. Well, like, you know, she's quite clearly an idiot as well. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, everything she does just, just is a disaster. But then, you know, the last, like, 45 pages or whatever, like, she saves... A small village from getting a, a massive supermarket built there. It gets offered a job at a prestigious PR firm. Like, realises that she has the same cupboard as her sister. 
And that means they that, must be that's, real sisters. That's my favourite bit in the whole book where <laughs> are we, she... Are we going to say in any book then? <laughs> <laughs> it's up there. It's in my top five of any book ever where... As you say, there's doubts about the biological compatibility of the two of them, and like they've just been like chalk and cheese all the way through. Um, and her sister is a geologist, and she obviously is a moron that just acquires <laughs> things. Um, but when she goes into her sister's house and sees how she displays her rocks, she's like, "It's the same way I keep my shoes. We must be sisters." And yeah. you're just sort of like, and it is, I, you know. I, I I work with books and I like reading books and I have a vague understanding of uh, the, how publishers work and the book trade and the role of editors. Who read this manuscript? I mean, this is the thing. It's sold. Six million, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's a wider problem in society. We can agree on that. But it's just <laughs> remarkable. Like, in good conscience, and this is, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I'm not an editor working on this, so if you can tell on the books. But who reads that? And just sort of goes green light. This is we don't need to do anything else. Here. This is this is finished. It's just remarkable. It's just it's such an odd. It just feels to me like this thing that's just made of so many mistakes. Mm. But that's how it works. If you if you try to fix it, you know what I mean. You, if you sort of went, well, if we just fix the characterization, but then the plotting's so wrong. But then what about the stuff? You'd, you'd have to change all of it and just make a good book. But I guess if you just keep it consistently terrible. But the right sort of shaped terrible. Yeah, I don't get it at all, really. I tried like, to think about the appeal. Is that what? Cause yeah, I, I don't. Well, the point is, it sold six million. Exactly. Books. Like, tell it with Jay Goody, right? We talked about on the ten worst Southlanders episode, and like controversially, we included Jay Goody. I say we. I kind of push the issue, didn't I, Steve? Do you want to sort of keep yourself keep your hands clean in this one? <laughs> but what annoyed me is that she'd sold like a million and a half books or yeah, something, yeah. and I found that ludicrous. But I can understand why people bought them. To an extent, I mean, only to an extent. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not endorsing it, certainly. But I wonder if we've just kind of happened, happened upon... We've not used the phrase chicklet at all yet. No. Um, but I wonder if we've happened upon the worst chicklet author. Tell people what chicklet is, Steve. It's, or what the phrase well, means. Yeah, exactly. It's a publishing term for books that are designed... And it's so, I don't even want to say it, designed to appeal to women, because it's not. It's a particular kind of woman, a particular, women of a particular age, women of a particular, it's designed yeah, at a very yeah, well, that's particular the thing. We don't, don't want to, I mean, there's male versions of this, you know. There is, and, and I, I but, thought but they don't. But they don't get But they don't get called manlit or anything. That's, that is, that's the problem, isn't it? The inherent, the inherent sexism in society. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, yeah, this is the kind of, this is aimed at, but the thing is, at women that read um, kind of, Women that want to digest trashy culture, I think. But having read, stuff. having read things you know, the like... Same, the, like... The male equivalent would be like, I don't know, Andy McNabb, his novels. Yeah, no? but with that, and that's the thing, I was like, I was thinking, like, we, you know, traditionally, um, you know, Andy McNabb at, at a very extreme end, but then Nick Hornby, the sort of middle... Nick Hornby, in no, terms no, of the, the lifestyle aspect yeah, but of the, it. Yeah, but maybe the better chick could be compared to Nick Hornby. Certainly this couldn't. But in terms of success, you have to. This is the thing: you have to take this as being. You, you can't judge it in terms of it, it, its literary uh, position. Do you know I mean you have to sort of go? No, I don't know, man, because I think there's there's other non chick lit books that have sold in numbers that are as bad. But Nick Horn, but you, I don't mean in terms of the lit, in terms of quality of the writing. Nick but Hornby's in, a miles but, away. But in terms of being seen as aimed at a particular gender, aimed at a particular 
uh, age group aimed at a particular. I think we would be with the the kind of um, those crime series would be a lot closer, and right. some of the sci-fi, you know, so those tr- rubbishy sci-fi stuff, you know, Star Wars novelizations, things. But like this that. is my thing. This is what I was going to say. When you look at those, if we just take, as you say, uh, genre pieces uh, like sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, sort of military action like Andy McNabb or espionage book or even the sort of Nick Hornby um, who's the other guy um, John nah Tony Parsons uh, where it is you know it, it's men dealing with relationship issues and personality issues and things like that even then you know if you look at Nick Hornby thing the, the men are dysfunctional but the dysfunction comes out in terms of being obsessive about certain things and listing certain things and they're still they're still given intelligence. They're given right. credence as characters. It's not they're not dysfunctional. They're just like obsessed about certain things. But away from that, and even that, even like if you look at a, you know a Nick Hornby character, they'll have an encyclopedic knowledge of a subject, or you know the traditional sort of like those sort of male characters in the version of this book. They'll be obsessed about football or cars or uh, music, and they'll make lists. And they'll, but they'll have Knowledge, whereas with this character, fashion brands, yeah, that's the thing. But not even even then, it's not the same, is it? No, it's not the same. That's the thing. It's not something that has any sort of wider use. You would you would say, but and then with the sort of as I say, the, the sort of more action oriented stuff, like the genre pieces and the military pieces, you can sort of understand that being an aspirational thing or a, a sort of uh, you know. Something that you could imagine yourself, you'd want to be a hero, you'd want to be active, you'd want to, you know, you could sort of see people uh, wanting to identify with that. You know, James Bond is a terrible character, is, you know, he's doing these exciting things, she's falling down the mountain. Just, do you know what I mean? Just, what, what, <laughs> yeah. what are you. So, this is what I'm saying, though, about her being the bad end of it. Like, say, someone like Dorothy Coombson, I've not read her books, they have similar covers and stuff. Right. But I've spoken to people that have, and it seems like. Maybe even though that's kind of trashy and it's not kind of well, not by any stretch of the imagination, like kind of high literature. You know, we, I feel like we've just hit the like, say, like Louise Mensch, I think is an abominable human being. I'm loath to even mention the woman, but she writes stuff, doesn't she? As Louise Bagshaw, I find it difficult to believe it would be as bad as this, yeah, it would be. Yeah. And the same for who else is there? Uh, Lisa Jewell is another yeah. one, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's a load of them, and I just think we must have hit the bottom wrong here. I can't believe there's other stuff that's sold. But this is sold six million. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing that, that really I was like, it, try, I was trying to work out what the the, the sort of appeal was, and I, I just couldn't get it at all. But I was like, wait, six minutes. There must be something to it. And I was thinking, what could you enjoy without necessarily wanting to identify with? And you know, and this is going to sound ridiculous, particularly going from me, but. The closest I could think of was sort of Jeeves and Worcester, where you have Bertie Worcester, who is uh, a nincompoop, who is, you know... and Well, this is the thing, though. This is, it, this is what I think. Maybe she, she's going for that, isn't she? That's the thing. She's going, she's she going falls for, down the mountain, she yeah. does this. Oh, no, she's ended up on, yeah. on the wrong side. She's working for this. She's going to get a job at a PR firm. Oh, no, she's ended up organising a protest on the other side. But it's not done well at all, no, is exactly. it? No, exactly. I mean, this and is that's... how a, a side episode might end, yeah, exactly. end like that. Yeah. But there's just absolutely no wit anywhere in sight. But, and that's the thing. If you look at the, the sort of the shape of the piece with um, quasi-farcical elements and these... 
you know, characters and whatnot. You know, she's trying to do something very similar to what Woodhouse would do in one of those novels. But obviously, in terms of characterization, he's brilliant. His plots are just meticulous. They're like clockwork. It's ridiculous how good they are. Um, his grasp of language is beyond most uh, writers' English language, let alone, um, what's her name? Sophie Kinsella. Madeline. <laughs> but, and the thing is, of course, with with Bertie, to use him as the sort of, like, the Becky Bloomwood of the piece, Brandon, <laughs> she did get married. She did get married. Um, it's made clear that he is a largely dysfunctional human, but that's why you have Jeeves. And the people around him are largely dysfunctional, but are from a very particular time and, and place, and have these people working to sort of make things right for them. And that, the, you know, Jeeves, you know, Bertie has the best will in the world and thinks he's helping, but it's Jeeves who's actually fixing it all. And, I'm going, and this book doesn't have that. This book no. doesn't have a Jeeves. It just has a writer that goes, I'll fix it. You can't be Jeeves. You write Jeeves well, into the book. Well, she can. Well, she can. And but... what, is the answer just that a lot of people will just dilute, uh, digest absolute rubbish? Like, you know, EastEnders. Um, and it, it, not that this is on EastEnders level, but say like, East, you know, when you used to read the Radio Times, number one on BBC EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. Number one on ITV, Coronation Street. Number two, Emmerdale Farm. It's odd because, like, as I say, I don't know, there's no identification. You know, like with this character... Who, it's not even on that level. That's the thing. But it's not it? even like you're reading it and going, "I wish I could do these things." What get into crippling debt and I end up like with too it, much stuff? And I, it might be the she's worst. Not, she's not having fun in this book at any point. There's nothing that no, she's she, enjoying. Of she is. Well, she gets that back. She has yeah, fun throughout. She has yeah. fun throughout, man. She gets that back, she... Steve. Yeah, she does all that shopping. She's happy selling stuff. But this is the thing. Even with the shopping, like as you say, this bit, she's like, "I can't even keep track of what I bought." Was she? No, but that's... It just comes across as compulsive rather than anything enjoyable. I better do this because if I'm not doing this, I'm not alive. That's yeah, what that's yeah, the exactly, thing you get from it. Exactly. Right, I don't know how enjoyable that is. It was not in any way, but she's enjoying herself, Steve. There's an element though, Steve, where I've got a kind of respect for her. Madeline, is it Whitlaw? Wickham. Wickham. She sounds like a PG Woodhouse character. Yeah, have you seen her on telly? No, she's just, like she's very posh, and she insists she's just not done it for the money. But I mean, you don't want to judge people on this basis. But her kids are called Freddie, Hugo, Oscar, Rex, and Sibella. She got to know about the problem? world, isn't it? Is that a problem? Yeah, it's a massive problem, isn't it? But call my son Rex. But you know, you you know, you when you're younger, you kind of you want to do something good, don't you? You want to make great things. And as you get older, and you're not necessarily making great things, you think, well, it'd be nice to at least, you know, make some easy money. <laughs> <laughs> and she's done that, isn't she? She's just, she's. I won't say she's stolen a living, but she's no, managed sorry. to kind of. If you of, don't, I will. You can't knock the hustle, innit? Can't knock the hustle. I don't know, but this is the thing. You're like, going to knock the hustle. I'm, I'm going to knock the hustle because it's like you can't sort of go, uh, say what you like. She's putting grunge. She hasn't. There's no work gone into this, is it? It's just no, that's like, why I respect, isn't it? If it work right. gone into it, it'd be a joke, innit? It's hustle, <laughs> innit? She's hustled her way to, to being a millionaire. Right. And. I, you know, excuse excuse the phrase, but fair play to her, Steve. See, this is the thing. Cameron's Britain, isn't it? This is the problem. Too many people hustling a living. I think and... she was doing this under Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> we ended the Angela Carter segment with a quote. Uh, can I just leave you with a quote from Shopaholic and Sister? Yeah, go for it. I never knew a horse could hold so much shopping. 